Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, thank you so much. We thank you for the opportunity to be here today. We thank you for our church family. We thank you for birthdays, and we thank you for all the different things that you do on a daily basis to remind us how important it is that we are connected to others in our family. We pray, Lord, today, help us to connect ourselves to you. Open our hearts to you even as we open up your word to us and fill us with your spirit. We give this to you in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. Uh, on the first Sunday of February, 20 years ago, I gave my first sermon here. Um, it was, it was a fill-in. It was just uh, it was filling in for Bernie uh, Windmiller, who was the interim pastor here at the time. And so I was only here for a couple Sundays, but then I came back six months later and came here full time. Um, it was not, however, the first time I'd been here, because I'm sneaky. I sneaky came in early so I could watch and see how you guys work on a Sunday morning. I wanted to get a sense of what you guys did, what time you got, you ended, all that kind of stuff. I wanted to have a sense of how people interacted with one another and interacted with the with the preaching so that I'm an information junkie. You know me now, so it shouldn't surprise you. Um, what did surprise me is I'd been here as a senior pastor know, six months, a year? It'd been a while. And somebody came up and said, laughingly, respectfully, are we always going to get out late? And, um, and and I was like, I'm not sure I understand. I mean, we've been getting out pretty consistently at noon every Sunday. And they said, yeah, but it's supposed to be 11.45. See, apparently the Sunday I came to watch how y'all did stuff, Bernie went late. <laughs> he usually ended at 11.45, but he ended it at noon that day, and I just thought that's what it was. And for months, nobody told me. They just sat there going. I say this because anytime you get two different groups together, there's some chaffage. There's just there's some there's a learning curve as you're trying to understand each other. Um, and and sometimes that's what's if it goes well, it's very maturing for everybody. It's always better if you can get different perspectives working together because then you stretch each other. That's good. But change can be difficult, and that means that it can be scary or, or painful. And if, you're, if you don't do it well, it can be scarring and hurtful, and you don't want to do that. So it arguably should be something we work on doing well. In fact, uh, uh, this week, Calvin, well, actually pretty much everybody, in, when we were sharing testimonies, shared about a time in life where we were thrust into a completely different context, completely different culture of something, and we were kind of forced to stop and think, what should I change? What shouldn't I change? How do I adapt to this? How does adapting change me in good ways? How does adapting change me in, in not so good ways? So I don't care whether you're talking about new church pastors to a, to a church family, or you're talking about newlyweds, or you're talking about trying to get to know your roommate, anytime you're putting people together, there's going to be a learning curve. And we, what you need to do is to do this well. Bear this in mind as we continue on in Ephesians. And if you haven't already done it, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And we need to pick up where we left off. And Paul's going to talk a little bit about some of this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, which means I have to stop, right? What's the therefore, therefore? I can't just start a, a, a verse with therefore and move on. Therefore, because of this, because of what? 
What's he been saying that got us to this point? What's he talking about to the letters in Turkey in this form letter to all of our our churches? So far, again, as you're turning there, we've heard all about how God chose all of us even before history began, before the creation of all these things, before he hung the stars and the sun and the moon and the sky, he chose you. And he loves his children, all of his children. It's not that you were specifically so good or that you're so much better than the person sitting next to you in the pew or that you're going to do things that are better than the person sitting next to you in the pew. He chose you because without him, you were lost, right? All of us. If he didn't bring you in, you would still be wandering lost, dead in sin. He loves you. So Paul's been praying that you, that all of us, you, me, all of us, he's been praying that we all might be more and more filled with God's spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can see his heart more and more. We can understand him more and more. So that ultimately we might all, all of us, as one body, one church, that we might all be filled to the fullness of everything godly. That that naturally outflows Uberflutes out of us and into everybody around us, everything around us. You and I, all, all of us, were lost and dead at one point in our sins. We started off broken. There's nobody that you go, well, I was pretty good. No. All of us, everyone, at one point or another, were objects by nature, objects of God's wrath. That's where we started with this. But in order to, for, to show his the incomparable riches of his grace, of his unmerited favor. He saved us while we were sinners, while we were still sinning. He says, that's exactly the sort of person I need to get saved. Those people need to get saved. Not so that they can clean up their act so that they can get saved. They need to get saved so they can clean up their act. For it is by grace you've been saved, he says, by that unmerited favor, through faith, in verse 8. And this, this salvation, this whole gift, that's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's not you, and it's not what you did. For we are God's worksmanship, not ours. It's God's work that makes us have value, not ours. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So it's a both end. Are we supposed to do good things so we're saved? No. You've been saved, so do good things. That's why you were saved to do this, so do that. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works with God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, then that's what the therefore is there for. If we genuinely accept everything that he's been saying so far, therefore, I want you guys to remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, and that's being done in the body by the hands of men, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. Which is a bit of a mouthful when you think about it. There's a lot being said there, and it's pretty intense. You guys who were uncircumcised Gentiles, and the emphasis, here's an interesting emphasis. He's like, you know, that, that distinction. You're the uncircumcised Gentiles, by the way. That distinction is being made by people who are circumcised in their kind of a human outward thing that they're making the distinction about. You Gentiles were once separate from Christ, non-citizens, foreigners to the kingdom. You were lost, you were alone. Think about how the two different groups would have heard that. Because there were both Gentiles and Jews in the church at this time, right? Sitting there in Turkey, in these various churches, Jews and Gentiles both hearing this. How do they, 
How did the different groups hear this? Think about how the Jews would have heard it. Would they have heard about this and gently shaking their heads at those Gentiles? You remember what they were. They were just, they were so separate. They were so lost. If so, I mean, they're kind of forgetting what we just read in Ephesians about. Like the rest of us, you were nature, by nature objects of God's wrath. You can't sit there and go, yeah, those lost people are particularly messed up. You go, any lost people are particularly messed up. Yeah. And you start off lost. Yeah. So you were in the exact same boat. Don't cop an attitude. Would the Gentiles have heard this and heard him being judgy? I mean, would they have heard him say, yeah, somehow we're particularly naughty? Somehow we're, we were worse sinners than the Jewish Christians were or than... I don't know. Read Romans 1, 1 through 2, 1. You've got to read through the first verse of chapter 2 to get Paul's sense of, and how do I feel about those who are just utterly lost versus those who are only partially screwing this up? Or would they have heard him make that distinction that, okay, you know, the star-bellied sneech thing about circumcision, that's all just man-made stuff, right? That he's, in that verse, in verse, uh, in, in, in verse 11 here, the distinction that they're making is something that Paul doesn't seem to think should be made. Do the Gentiles hear this and go, yeah, they're still kind of telling us we're less important sneeches, that we don't belong in the same beaches that they do. Were there enough things going on, and even in these, these two verses, that both sides could have felt justified in feeling distinctly divided against the other side? I mean, clearly, you guys were different. Clearly, you guys were separate. Clearly, yes, they were. Yes, I, well, that's what they, they still think we're different. Are there enough things? I think so. Help me out here. Are there distinctions within the body of Christ today, within the church today, that we might hop to with the whole star-bellied sneech thing of saying, I've got stars, you don't. I've got big stars, you've got little stars. I've got different stars than you do. Are there dichotomies that we still divide over? I'm not talking about sin issues where you say, no, no, this is a crucial thing where I need to make a distinction and, and I need to not follow you into a sinful lifestyle. I'm not talking about heresies that by definition are dividing one group from the vine itself, where you say, you're, you're not my brother and sister. You're, you're non-Christian. I'm talking within the church itself. Are there hostilities? Traditional versus contemporary music. Is there hostility in anybody's mind about that? Conservative versus liberal theology. Conservative versus liberal politics. Calvinists versus Arminians. White versus black versus yellow versus brown versus red versus plaid. Baptist versus Southern Baptists. <laughs> what are the things that we sit there and go, this, this keeps me from you. 
You are on that side of the room. We are on this side of the room. Talking about anything that is an us-them. Not a sin issue, not a heresy issue. What breaks fellowship that is simply star-bellyedness? Because Paul says, remember that at that time, though not at this time, you Gentiles were separate from Christ, though you aren't now, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. Because none of those are true now. Because that was then. Now none of these is true. That's rather dark. But what's the first word of the next verse? You guys were lost and alone. You guys were separate. You guys were without a country. You guys were foreigners. You guys were alien. But, love that word. Tiny little, awesome little pivot word. But, you were separate. But, you were excluded. But, you were foreigners. But, now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You were far away people. Now you're near to people. That's the way it is. Thanks to Christ's atoning work, at oneing work at the cross, you've been brought to oneness. Changed your status. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How intensely is Paul phrasing this? Did, did Christ like bend the chain link fence over so that you could slip over? Took some tin snips and snipped a hole in it so you could slip through? How does he phrase it? He demolished it. He utterly destroyed the entire barrier. It's gone. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. There is no barrier between faraway people and near to people anymore in Christ. If you've been washed clean, if you are a Christian, y'all near to people. That's, isn't that part of what that rip in the temple curtain meant? You're in the Holy of Holies now. You're in the Holy Presence of God. Am I near to or am I far from? You're there. You're right there. There are no more faraway people. There is no barrier there any more than you're still a zombie lost in your sins. Right? The only dead body that you're carrying around of a sin nature, the only barrier of hostility that you're carrying around is what you're doing by habit, bad habit, from what you used to do. There's any time you should find yourself going, well, conservatives have. That's your zombie dead corpse talking. If there's ever a time when you find yourself going, well, if black people would just, that's the zombie dead corpse part of you talking. Not the part that honors Christ. If there's any hostility that you could go, well, <laughs> this one's valid. At that point, you've abandoned what Christ is calling you to walk in. And instead, you're rebuilding what he literally demolished. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh, by washing it away with his blood, by physically dying on the cross. He got rid of the law and its commandments and regulations. He, he, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Even Paul sometimes refers to Gentiles being grafted onto the family of God, onto this Jewish nation, the Jewish promises and blessing. But the, the truth of it is slightly more nuanced than that. The truth is, Jesus didn't just die to, 
make one group new and then staple it onto an old wineskin, if I may mix my metaphors. Jesus died to make all groups new, to make all groups into one new group with all the blessings and all the grace that the people of God were always supposed to have had. That's why Paul could write elsewhere in Galatians 3, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, if you have been washed clean, this is not everybody on the planet. This is everybody who has actually said, yes, I want to be adopted. For all of you who were baptized into Christ and said, who I was not anymore, and I've come up a new creation. For all of you who have closed yourselves with Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, he's not saying there's absolutely no distinction on anything because then specific things that he's talked about in other places based on some of those distinctions become invalid. Yes, he still thinks there are boys and girls. Yes, he still thinks some people are free and some people are still slaves. Yes, but what he's saying is all of those things are now mechanics of how you operate in this world. You, in your relationship with God, in your relationship with one another, you, there is no distinction. There is no us and them. There is no, you should sit on the other side of the room here. There is none of that. The long and the short of it, he says, is if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Your heirs according to the promise, just as much as anyone else. You are children. We talked about this in Sunday school. You are children. You know, well, I mean, adopted. No, no, yes, mechanically, yes. But you're just as much a child of God as Abraham ever was. You are absolutely walking by faith, and you are absolutely in God's family. You're, you've all become, whether you start off Jewish or you start off Gentiles, you were all, at one point, by nature, objects of God's wrath. And whether you start off Jewish or you start off Gentiles, you are all of you now part of the family of God. You are all of you now heirs to the promise. You are all of you now what you were supposed to have been in the first place. Saruman as he should have been, right? This is what you should have been all along. So in Ephesians 2.14, Jesus destroyed this barrier between us as brothers and sisters, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. So... So even that circumcision thing means, so you shouldn't get circumcised. So you should get circumcised. Is he saying that it's of no value? Why? You've heard me say this so many times. Why? It's not the what of circumcision, it's the why of circumcision. Why would you get circumcised? Why would you circumcise your child? Why would you as an adult get circumcised? Why? Is it to honor God? Okay, great. It's not the cutting, it's the honoring that's the point there, right? That's the crucial thing, a circumcision of the heart, to coin a phrase. Okay, Paul already did that one, but that's all right. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, making peace. That's Christ's purpose of the church. So why would... Why would we ever, as Christians, still dichotomize between us and them? The people we like and the people we don't. The people who are like us and the people who aren't. 
the red state Christians and the blue state Christians, the tall Christians, the short Christians, the Christians who are beautifully bald and the rest of you who foolishly cover your head in hair. <laughs> Mick knows what I'm talking about. Yes, there's the chuckle. Anyway, <laughs> the whole point of this is to say it's gone. His purpose is to create in himself one new man out of the two, making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The dividing wall is destroyed. Their hostility itself is dead. We are one body filled with one spirit, so don't drag that corpse around. Just don't do that. Don't do that. If you ever find yourself saying, well... This hostility, they kind of brought it on themselves when you think about it. Don't do that. Apparently, Olivia counted last week, and last week I said 55 times you were dead in your sins. 55 times. Do not make me say it again. I don't want to drag that corpse around. I don't want to do that. If we remember that it is by grace that we've been saved through faith, and this salvation is not from ourselves, it's a gift of God, it's not from works, so that no one can boast, how could we boast in ourselves? How could we, or if not boast in ourselves, how could we jeer at not us? Because isn't that the easy way of boasting in yourself? If I don't know of anything specific I can boast in, I can sit there and go, well, but at least Anna's dumb. That's the easy way of saying I'm smart, isn't it? I don't have to prove anything about my smartness. It's the easy way. Don't do that. If I genuinely believe what Paul is saying here, how can I dichotomize anything from that earlier list? How can I do that? Which of those things are worth rebuilding fences of? I don't want to do that. And if we are genuinely, along with Paul, praying that we all might be filled to the fullness of everything godly, naturally overflowing into everyone, everything that we touch, all around us, all the time, as ambassadors, then shouldn't, shouldn't that mean that that extends to how we treat our brothers and sisters? We shouldn't hold ourselves apart from other Christians Again, I'm not talking about sin issues. I'm not talking about heresy. I'm just talking about fellowship divides because they don't look enough like me. My brothers and sisters, this ought not be so. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. You were far away. They were at least near. But it's interesting phraseology because he had just said, ain't no far away people anymore, right? He's brought everyone near. So he says, Jesus came and preached peace to all the faraway people and peace to all the near to people, and now you're all near to people. So today it's not a matter of us you know, being near to, because we're particularly good Christians. It's not a matter of us looking at other Christians and going, well, we need to reach out to some of those that are a little farther away. It's us reminding ourselves and them that we're all near to people. We're all that. We're all close to God. Can we, on a given day, do a better or worse job of that? Sure. Work on that. There's whole sections of Scripture saying, work on that. In Christ, in God's Spirit, in God's strength, work on that. But you're all near to people. 
There's no ugly sheep to the shepherd. There's just sheep, right? There's just sheep. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. The same Father, the same spirit, right? Is there a distinction? Consequently, Paul says, you who are no, you are no longer foreigners. You're no longer aliens. You're fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, grafted on, but not, not treated like stepchildren. You're, you're just as much children and heirs as anyone else in the kingdom. That's your relationship with God. That's your identity. The blood of Christ on the cross supersedes any divisions that we might make between ourselves. Christ's sacrifice is that effective. Is is Christ's sacrifice just the blood on the cross, just his his sacrifice on our sins? Is Is that as effective for Gentiles as it is for Jews? Is that as effective for Jews as it is for Gentiles? Is it enough? It's as effective for Calvinists as it is for Arminians, right? It's as effective for women as it is for men. It's as effective for whites as it is for blacks. It's as effective for conservatives as it is for liberals. Did any of those cause any kind of heart stutter step at all? Maybe not. Maybe you're like, nope. All men are brothers, all brothers and sisters in every way. Nope, I have no hostility toward anyone. You're awesome. That's great. If there's any part of you that goes, I, I struggle to fully embrace, then, then we can work on that. Because there's some things we can, we can work on, right? But if Christ's sacrifice is as effective for Gentiles as it is for Jews or any of those dichotomies, then any personal barriers, any dividing walls of hostility have to fall. They have to fall within us within us as a church, within us as a household, within us as individuals. They have to, because it was Christ's purpose to create himself one new man out of the two, making peace. And if I genuinely want to serve Christ, I don't want to do anything that's contrary to his purpose, do I? I don't want to stand against his purpose. I don't want to do that. Read an article in Christianity Today, read... uh, I've read a couple of different articles this week as a result of that. There's just a number of people talking about, yeah, well, obviously Christianity is not very good at loving people. The church is really bad at this. And we just need to understand that the church is one of the worst, as one article said, one of the worst offenders of hate in this world. Like, okay, first off, you need to read more. I'm, I'm sorry. There's a lot of other groups out there that are that are more hateful than the church in the United States. But if in any way we are coming across like that because we do hate, or, okay, not hate, hostilityize with vehemence, fill in the blank. Liberal churches hate conservatives. Conservative churches hate liberals. I don't care. Whatever comes across, that's what seems to be coming across to the secular world in the United States. Certainly what's coming across through the media to the secular world in the United States. Of course, if you read the Bible, that's not even remotely what we're supposed to be like. So to the degree to which we're doing that, it doesn't speak poorly of Christianity, it just speaks poorly of us. But since we're supposed to be ambassadors of Christianity, maybe we can work on that. Maybe we can work on that. 
I say that in part because Paul's getting into all that, and I say that in part because we're about to take the Lord's Supper together. And I seem to recall that part of why we have as much information about the Lord's Supper as we do in Scripture is because so many people botched it. In Corinth, they were botching it so much that Paul's like, let me go through the entire liturgy so that Kevin can read it on a Sunday morning. Because you guys are mistreating one another. There is hostility and division within your body. By the way, that's why so many people are sick and weak and dying. It's that, it's that crucial. So before we come to take the Lord's Supper together, I would encourage us all to stop and say, let me examine myself. Am I, have I got the right heart? I mean, even Jesus reminded us that if you are at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, you're supposed to do what? You're supposed to set your stuff down in front of the altar and then go off and make things right and then come back. So before, we, before we do this, let me encourage you. If there's anything where you go, I've fostered justified hostility toward this group or that, this person or that, whatever. I've justified bitterness. I've justified division. I've justified separation. Let me encourage you. Maybe examine yourself before you eat and drink judgment on yourself. Paul's words, not my words. Paul's words. Maybe do that. Make things right. And if you're saying, why couldn't you preach this last week? Um, or told us in advance you were going to do this. Is anything I'm saying here news? So maybe, since every once in a while we might actually have communion, um, maybe this is something in general we should be working on, that we're forgiving and dealing with things on a general basis. I encourage all of us to stop and say, wait, I want to, I want to live in right relationship with people. But Paul's trying to talk about this here in a positive way. He's, he's like, let me, let me try to be encouraging. Let me, let me correct, like he says in verse 11, because, you know, they've got the wrong attitude. But in general, let me say this. You aren't foreigners and aliens anymore. You're fellow citizens. You're members of the household. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. We're all of us bricks and stones in the same walls of the same house. And I love this. To use Paul's analogy here, we may be two different walls, but we come together and are connected to the cornerstone. Technically, technically, you're just one wall with an angle. You're not two walls coming together. You're one wall with an angle, and Christ is the angle. In him, this whole building is joined together. It becomes one building, and it rises to become a holy temple, a set-apart residence for God for us to be worshiping in. We want to make sure we take that seriously. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Because this is not the church, right? It has never been the church. You guys are the church. This is not a temple. You guys are the temple. How important is it to use holy materials when building the holy temple? How important was it that they would bless things as they're putting it together? They'd bless the workmen as they're putting it together. How important is this? You are the temple in which God's spirit should fill with the fullness of God every part of you and overflow out of you and overflow into everyone here and overflow out into the street. And that's what we should be doing technically all the time. 
That's what Paul is praying for. Not just in these four walls, but in your walls. Walls built to be a temple, not walls built to be dividing. Those walls were destroyed at the cross. But as we prepare our hearts for communion, which means to come together unifiedly, right? To commune with God, to commune with one another, we're being together one. I'm reminded of what Peter wrote about the same concept of being stones together to build a holy temple. In 1 Peter 2, he says, as you guys come to him, the living stone, and he uses lithos, not petros, he uses this cut stone uh, that uh, Jesus and the Josephson boys would have used in their construction business. Not big old rock like Jesus called Peter, right? Peter's like, you guys are these cut stones prepared. And Jesus is like, you're big old rock, Peter. As you come to him, the living cut rock, cut stone, rejected by men, chosen by God, precious to him, chosen from the creation of the world before them. You also, like living cut stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a a holy priesthood. You guys are the holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because we want our worship to be acceptable. Somehow, even Jesus said coming to the altar with hostility is unacceptable. It makes your worship unacceptable. Fortunately, through no fault of your own, you can be acceptable. You can be loved. You can be appreciated because Christ has washed you clean. Peter quotes the scriptures in Isaiah 28 where he says, See, I lay a, a cut stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, the one we've just been talking about. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame, not by God, not by the people of God, because we're all just stones building toward and connected by that precious cornerstone. Now to you who believe, Peter says, this stone, this cut stone is precious. To those who don't believe, again, Peter quotes from Psalms, the cut stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone, the the most important stone in the whole building that, that everything finds its strength and stability in. And quoting from Isaiah, he says, this cut stone that causes men to stumble, literally a stumbling block, and a big old rock that makes them fall. It's a scandal in Greek where you get the word scandal. So it's like, here's the thing. We're dealing with rocks and stones. When you deal with Christ, he's either going to be this beautiful cut stone, the most important stone, the one that you build on, the one you build toward, the one that, that caps everything, this most important foundation, or he's going to be a big old rock that you stumble and fall over. There is no third option. There's never a time where people go, well, to me, he's kind of like a, nope. He's either the most important stone or you trip over him. Those are the options. Sorry, it's just physics. But that's entirely up to you and me because God is calling to us. God's spirit is drawing us. But he's going to be crucial and he's going to be decisive in your life either way. So Paul says, all right, Christ Jesus himself is our chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become this set-apart, holy temple to the Lord, built by God with stones chosen and cut and prepared by God. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And I pray with Paul from earlier in the letter 
that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you understand him more and more, that you know him more and more, you know him better and deeper and richer. For in this reason, Paul says, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, I'm going to get to my real point here. For this reason, I'm even going to slap down my resume so that you understand how important it is that you do this. For this reason, We'll talk about that next week. In the meantime, in the meantime, stop and think about what it means that you have been built together to be a holy dwelling. Every stone important, every stone connected. That's the only wall. There is no wall of hostility. I'm going to give you a second just to examine your heart, to praise God, to remember that when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're coming to a family meal with our brothers and sisters. And if I recall, there's only two kinds of people on the planet. Our genuine brothers and sisters who we love deeply with no hostility and no barriers between us. And people who we wish were our brothers and sisters so that we could love them deeply and unblemishedly with no barriers between us. Would you pray? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that you are so much bigger than we are, so much more on top of all these things than we could ever be. And I pray, Lord, help us to have your heart, even as we come to your, your table, to eat a meal that honors you. In Jesus' name, prepare our hearts.